This is all kind of drawing from the Impressionist tradition where, you know, you'd had the Industrial Revolution and the day of leisure was really something new. I'm Ben Davis, and this is The Art Angle, a podcast from Artnet News where the art world meets the real world, bringing each week's biggest story down to earth. Well, here we are at the end of summer. So the producers of The Art Angle thought we might take a small vacation from the art news and take a day trip to visit a favorite work of art from the past. George Seurat's Sunday Afternoon on the Island of La Grande Jatte is one of the most famous artworks in the world. It has been studied and referenced and riffed on endlessly and is in fact the subject of at least one musical. Painted in 1884 when Seurat was just 27 years old in his self-created pointless style, the large canvas depicts an idle summer afternoon on an island in the middle of the River Seine with multiple fashionably dressed figures glimpsed out and about, seemingly enjoying the calm. La Grande Jatte is one of the star attractions at the Art Institute of Chicago, where it has been part of the collection since the 1920s. Artnet's Katie White has a popular art history column for the site, Three Things, where she revisits well-known works of art and offers new ways to look at them. Her article on Seurat's La Grande Jatte has been one of the most popular editions of that column, where she dove into the research about the painting's inspirations and into some of the unexpected debates about the meaning of this classic image of summer leisure. Katie White, thanks for joining me here to talk about art history. Glad to be here. Today we're going to dig into this article that you wrote for the site that is a kind of article that you and I actually came up with together, which is not a news article. It's not the news part of Artnet News. This is an art history column that you do where the idea we came up with was to take familiar images and give people something more to think about, tell people three things that deepen their understanding of the painting. And the painting we're talking about is Georges Seurat's Sunday afternoon on the island of La Grande Jatte, which is a very famous painting. But for people out there who need a refresher, who was Georges Seurat and what do we know about him that's relevant to understanding this painting? Sure. So George Seurat was a 19th century French painter who was famously the creator of a style that's today known as pointillism. And he is also a post-Impressionist, meaning he engaged with some of the aspects of the Impressionist style from earlier in the 19th century, namely kind of an interest in scenes of leisure and everyday life. But he also kind of moved the conversation forward stylistically. And he was born, I believe, in 1859. He was born into an upper-class French family. His father had made his money, I think, doing real estate speculation. They weren't like a historically, you know, aristocratic family. And he had a very brief but very productive life. He painted Sunday afternoon on the Isle of Grand Jot when he was 27, and he died at the age of 31 of what they think was diphtheria. And yeah, he really changed kind of the artistic discourse from the Impressionist mode into the post-Impressionist mode and other post-Impressionists, you know, or like Van Gogh, for instance. 
I think for me, and why I was kind of excited to talk about this painting, is that Seurat and this painting are very famous. Like, they are as mainstream center of the white guy European canon as you can get. And yet, he is just one of the great art oddballs. He occupies an eccentric place in art history as far as I'm concerned. And as you said, he is probably most famous for pointillism, which is actually a term of abuse, like so many of the names for art movements, including Impressionism and Cubism. Pointillism was an attempt to uh, make fun of what he did. He actually called what he did divisionism. So what was the main idea or style he was associated with before we get into this painting? Seurat was very interested in science, way more so than any other artist kind of working at that time. He was a science nerd. Yes, he was. And even from the time he was a child, he was very introspective. He had a kind of quiet personality. And he was known for really pouring over the latest journals and books about optical theory, color theory, and... Nothing Seurat did was a mistake or an accident or spontaneous, basically. He always did his drawings with the same exact materials. He had a very precise kind of process. And the idea of divisionism, as he called it, was the idea that pure points of color applied side by side rather than mixing colors would create a stronger effect in the mind. Your eye would combine the colors, would blend them, and it would be more striking visually in the mind. And so he was really interested by this French chemist whose name was Michel Chavreau, who wrote this book, Principles of Harmony and Contrast of Colors. And Chavreau had been enlisted actually oddly enough, by a tapestry company that was wondering why their dyes weren't coming out vividly enough. And he went in and did all these experiments and essentially decided that it wasn't the chemistry of the dyes, it was an optical issue. So that rather than trying to blend tones, things came out more strikingly if you put a yellow thread next to a blue thread, for instance. And that's kind of been disproven, but it was the kind of dominant optical theory at the time. And so that's the approach that he took. So he would just create tiny, tiny dots, which up close could look like modern art almost, but far away they blended together to create an overall image. The simultaneous contrast of colors was the name of the theory. And again, one of the things I find fascinating about this artist and this history, and one of the things that makes him such an oddball, is that, yeah, this is an erroneous theory. <laughs> that you, yeah. you, 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 The idea was that you would make the colors more lustrous and pop more. And if you look at a Seurat painting from a distance, they actually kind of do the opposite. They kind of have this almost muddy quality. Yeah. And yet it is such a fascinating style of art that it just is like no other and was very generative for other people exploring art in his wake. So before we go any further, I think since this is a podcast and we are talking about a painting, even though it is a very famous painting, I think it might be worth just having a little bit of visual description. So can you describe, I was going to say, can you paint a picture of <laughs> La Grande Jatte for us, but can you... Um, Paint us a word picture of what people see if they were to go to the Art Institute of Chicago today to see this painting. 
most people probably know this painting. If you've ever seen Ferris Bueller's Day Off, it's big scene in that movie. And it's kind of like the pinnacle work at the Art Institute of Chicago, where it's been since, I think, 1924. One of the all-time, I think, great art scenes in movies. You know, one of the few scenes in any movie that captures the excitement of going to a museum rather than depicting the museum as, you know, a fussy place. The scene of, I believe, Cameron standing in front of the painting and getting lost in it kind of always moves me. Yeah. And so what you see is kind of what would have been described as the Sunday painting. It's like a painting of leisure. So you see people on a grassy knoll. They're on the island of La Granja, which is an island that floats in the Seine, right at the gates of Paris. So just right outside the kind of metropolitan entrance. And It's a beautiful day, blue sky. You see kind of idyllic sailboats in the water. You see people out with their children in kind of fancier dress walking around. You see women with parasols. And this is all kind of drawing from the Impressionist tradition where, you know, you'd had the Industrial Revolution and the day of leisure was really something new. So people had time on Sundays to go have recreation and leisure, which had not been the reality for many people of many classes. And it was also kind of like the first age of spectacle where people were out. Women were out and men were out having these big luncheons. So it falls in that tradition. And who are these people? This is a multi-figure composition. What would people have seen when they looked at this? Would they have recognized types of people? So I think, you know, now you look at the painting and we're kind of like, oh, okay. So there's just a bunch of people out having this nice picnic on the side of the river. But for people who were viewing this from kind of a late 19th century perspective, the fashions would have clued people into different statuses. So by and large, this was a place of recreation leisure that was frequented by a kind of the upper middle classes, the bourgeoisie, but also coinciding with the Industrial Revolution is kind of like the rise of ready-to-wear fashion, which had not been a thing before. So you can tell, and people would have been able to see, that there were multiple classes of people here. And so there is a man who is on the lower left of the canvas who's wearing a cap and a shirt without sleeves. And he's lounging kind of more leisurely and like kind of greater repose than any other figure. And the hat plus the exposed arms would have signaled to people that this was a laborer. Then there are two women alone, like without male companion, by the banks of the river. And one woman is fishing. And I did not know this, but In researching this in the 19th century, that was kind of a symbol of what would be a prostitute. They're out there literally, quote-unquote, fishing for men. And there are two soldiers walking down the beach to meet them. And then there is another couple, kind of the most dominantly visual couple, who are on the right hand of the canvas, kind of closest to us, and it looks to me like a woman who's an upper-class woman. She's got a parasol, big dress on, but She has a pet monkey on a leash that she's walking, and that monkey is an indication that maybe she's also like a courtesan because the monkey is a historical symbol of lust. It's also a place of commerce, (laughs) is to say that 
the scene of leisure also has like layers of social dynamics going on. And then maybe the most interesting character in the painting is kind of in the back. It's the only figure that's really in motion in the background on the right-hand side, there's a little girl with a hoop who's running, and she's really the only figure that's shown in motion. And that has art historically been read as kind of like the figure of hope in this scene. It's like a person who's actually engaging in life. Right, because the air of the painting is somewhat ambiguous. There's a real studied ambiguity to it. And just to go back to the monkey for one second, I do think it's interesting that the monkey is in dialogue or, you know, it seems to be playing with a little dog because the dog is a symbol of fidelity. So I see it as a little bit of calculated ambiguity there itself is lust and fidelity sort of uh, at war in this scene. And I think that's the whole thing about the whole painting. It's filled with ambiguity. It's hard to read. Now, I think part of the reason the little girl playing stands out is because there is this kind of frozen quality to everything. The pointillist technique means that everything has this very carefully sculpted quality. And that, I think, would have read as very modern thing then, just as the clothing here would have really accented this as the painting of modern life. However, something you talk about in your article is the more classical inspirations of Seurat. Yeah, so Seurat had like a very traditional art education. He was simultaneously interested in Degas Monet, but his education, he went to the Ecole des Beaux-Arts and he was taught by a student of Ong, who's the French neoclassical painter, and Ong, in turn, had been taught by Eugène Delacroix, so this very long tradition of painting. And there he kind of followed like a very rigorous course, you know, copying old masters and drawing from cast and classical sculptures. And he dropped out after, I think, only a year or two, but he did kind of have a lasting interest in antiquity that He didn't want to paint people in antiquity, but he wanted to paint people in modern life with the kind of stability and strength of antiquity. He referenced, actually, the Parthenon friezes. He was very interested in kind Mm -hmm. of like the static forms of the Parthenon friezes. And he wrote in this letter to the French poet Gustave Kahn that, I think it's, I want to make modern people in their essential traits move about as they do on those friezes and place them on canvases organized by harmonies of color. And that is the way he really had a break from the Impressionists. As you know, the Impressionists were painting en plein air and he was making big canvases in his studio, you know? And so this is really like a grand scale painting. It's, I think, seven by 10 feet. So there is kind of, in a sort of solemnity, references to antiquity. Yeah, and it immediately is resonant with Impressionism, just the outdoor setting and the sense of atmosphere and the sense of middle-class leisure. But then I think Egyptian art in the Louvre was like an inspiration for him. And you really see that there are a lot of figures captured in profile. For sure. He brings together a lot of interest. I think that's where he kind of pushes forward the post-Impressionist conversation because he gives away that focus on the spontaneous aspect of Impressionism to like incorporate rigor and form in a more serious way. 
So I guess this is this quintessential classic image of a lazy Sunday afternoon, essentially. And one of the things I think is interesting about the stuff you bring together in your article is this whole tradition of reading the painting in a more critical way. And you cite a great paper by the art historian Linda Nochlin from 1989, Siraz La Grande Jatte, an anti-utopian allegory. What does Nochlin mean by writing about this painting of a Sunday afternoon's leisure as an anti-utopian artwork? So Linda Nochlin who most people know is a very famous feminist art historian. She really had this thinking that there were two traditions that emerged out of even the 18th century that coexisted into what we call modernity. And one, Seurat, she would include in this, was in the line of Courbet. And that would move forward into the American artists, like even Ben Sean, where it's like a socially engaged artwork. And then there is the tradition of Cezanne and the quote-unquote purity of painting that disengages from social dialogue and moves towards more abstract expressionism, where that everything on the canvas is kind of self-contained and very individualized. And so I think for her... Reading this painting, you see that all of the figures are very static. They're very isolated. Their faces are obscured. And she thought that this kind of technique that he was using of pointillism was inherently tied to modern experience, right? So he's kind of giving up the gesturalism of craft here. And he's allying himself with science and industry. I mean, I don't think in necessarily a positive way. I think it's more that he is in the making of his work embedding modernity in the terms of his craft, in the terms of the marks of pointillism are not grand brushstrokes, an almost industrial approach to making a painting. She had this really good quote that was Seurat must be seen as the ancestors of all of those who rejected the heroic, the apolitical sublimity of modernist art in favor of critical practice. And then she goes on to say the photomontages of Berlin Dada or collage contractions of Barbara Kruger are from this vantage point more in line of the neo-impressionist descent rather than innocuous oil paintings of those who happen to use little dots of paint to construct otherwise conventional landscapes of sea scenes. So I think that, yeah, she sees him really as a person who jump-started a kind of conversation about how industry and science were affecting art and the people of the middle class. Yeah, it's fascinating because I don't think would be anybody's first choice for an image of like a socially engaged work of art. And yet that is part of what's really interesting about digging into things art historically is you can kind of dig out some of the energy that they contain that you don't see because of convention, all the layers, because we see them out of their time. His own thoughts about what he did are hard to dig out. I understand one of the arguments for this more critical reading on La Grande Jatte is actually the reception of the painting in the first round. How did reviewers in 
its time view this work of art? I mean, I think, yeah, what you're saying is true. It was kind of an image that was pretty polarizing. He started in 1884. He worked on it for two years, and then he would return to it later. But it debuted at the eighth annual Impressionist exhibition, which was actually the last of those exhibitions. And it really had a divided reception, right? So some hailed it as a next step forward as like a truly modern work of art and others kind of were very put off and decried what they perceived as kind of a lack of emotion or a lack of narrative and some people thought it was robotic so like there's this one contemporary reviewer Alfred Poulet who says the artist has given his figures the automatic gestures of lead soldiers moving about on regimented squares which seemed kind of cold But that same stiffness can be read kind of in a more positive way, meaning like it is kind of a sign of the modern condition. And there's another reviewer, Paul Adam, he says even the stiffnesses of the figures and their punched out forms contributes to the note of modernity, reminding us of our badly cut clothes, which cling to our bodies and our reserved gestures. So I think... It was very divided, but that a lot of his contemporary artists saw it as a very political painting, even in right after it was made. And Paul Signac is kind of the other famous pointillist painter, and they were friends. And Seurat did not write much about his politics at all, but the kind of calm conversations around him hint at things. Like, I know that Signac referred to him kind of frequently as a communard, which is like a group of leftists that were kind of popular in the 1870s. And he had a quote from soon after Seurat died that says, by painting scenes of working class life, or better still, the pleasures of decadence, the painter Seurat, who had such a vivid perception of the degeneration of our transitional era, they bear witness to the great social trail that is taking place between workers and capital, which is pretty political language. Yeah, wild. Yeah. You know, I think that a lot of the painters kind of in his circle, and I think what Nachlin hinted at before with the kind of aligning him to Berlin Dada is that he was kind of painting more about a society kind of like in a state of degeneration rather than like, oh, here's a pretty picture of some water, you know? It's so fascinating because... The idea that people looking at the painting in its time will be accented for them was this feeling of stiffness, as if middle class was experiencing leisure, like they had become a different kind of human than maybe people were used to in the past. And leisure had become a different thing, a more like commodified thing, something maybe a little closer to like tourism in the modern sense. And that people were, you know, wearing new kinds of modern clothes that fit them in a different kind of way. And I think one of the ways you talk about in your article that you can see this or this is accented is because of the painting that is considered a companion piece to this painting. Can you talk about that? There's a painting that immediately preceded Sunday afternoon on the Isle of La Grande Jot, and it's also a very large-scale painting. It's slightly smaller. If you put them side by side, it would feel like you were looking at two halves of the same scene. They're both monumental paintings, and they're actually physically, right? So Agnès is 
on one bank of the Seine, and then the island of Grand Jatte is kind of on the other side, on an island on the right side. So they're kind of like literally facing each other. And this painting to a viewer of that contemporary time is just a working class people. Like this is not a mix of middle class, upper class people. And there are a lot of the clues to let you know that both their clothing, but also the way that their bodies are positioned. So you see here only men, a lot of them have their shirts off. A lot of them are swimming in the water itself. You have kind of the bowler hat, straw hats, which were clothing of the laboring class. Actually, in the distance, you can see wealthier people on a little canoe boat, a man in a top hat. And it's like a very strong contrast. And these figures are kind of really relaxed. They're made sort of slightly larger than life size. They're either sitting, laying down, or swimming. And one of the really interesting things is that you can see in the background factories. So there's smoke billowing in the background. It's not detached from the life of the city, and it's not pretending to be detached from the life of the city because the interesting thing about Le Grand Jatte is that they would have been able to see that too. So it's sort of like a conscious decision to pretend to be cut off from the industrial world of the city in one painting and then in the other painting, they're very much a part of it. And they are slouching. Their bodies are less disciplined. They don't have the kind of new forms of middle-class comportment that the Le Grand Jatte emphasizes. And so when the reviewer you quoted, Paul Adams, says, even the stiffness of the figures in La Grande Jatte and their punched out forms contribute to the note of modernity, reminding us of our badly cut clothes, which cling to our bodies and our reserved gestures. The British can't imitate it everywhere. I mean, there is a relationship between the different bodies. Yeah. It's also just like the taste of the time because this painting was totally rejected by the salon. <laughs> like he couldn't show it anywhere. And yet the stiff upper class, middle class painting got to show it and people had more positive reception to it. That is interesting, too, that Le Grand Jatte is more fully pointillist, I think. I think if you yeah. look, it is more brushy, the more working class one. He himself literally moving towards a more systematized form that captures this kind of sense of this ambiguous modernity, which is both forward looking, but also confining in some kind of a way. This has been really fun, Katie. And before I let you go, I just wanted to ask you what advice you have to people going to see this painting or any other painting. I really enjoy reading these articles that you put together, which really show me new ways to look at familiar images. I think there is a kind of popular belief right now that if you go look at an artwork, it should be able to give itself over to you no matter what, that you should mm -hmm. be able to have experience with it, even with no knowledge of what the artist is after. And I don't necessarily think that's true, at least in kind of art historical training, the ideas that you want to like be able to try to see the way people of the time saw. And so I do a lot of reading. I think that 
If you're not familiar with JSTOR, that's my place to go to read about paintings. Sometimes I read about paintings before I see them. Sometimes I read about them after I see them. So I do think that context helps. It helps you decode images. And I think that the other thing is that paintings take time and that sitting with the painting for a long time and letting it reveal itself to you over time is a very critical part of the process. I mean, to write these articles takes a really, really long time because it's hard to suss out these small details and compare it to other works that kind of offer little revelations into what's changed or why it might be changing. So I would say reading and just giving artwork time. Well, on that note of taking the leisure of looking at painting very seriously, I think that that is the perfect place to end the conversation. Thank you so much, Katie. This has been a lot of fun. Yeah, it's been great. Thank you so much. That's it for this edition of The Art Angle. If you enjoyed it, please be sure to rate or review the podcast wherever you get your podcast. It really does help people find us. The Art Angle is produced by Sonia Manalili and Caroline Goldstein. See you next week.